0: Hey everyone, I just wanted to jump out ahead of this episode and let you all know that there is a potential trigger warning in this episode. If you've already seen the Daredevil episode, then you know it features uh, heavy scenes of domestic violence and we recognize that that might be potentially upsetting for people. So listen to this episode with caution. Enjoy the show. to another episode of MCU Need to Know, a podcast dedicated to the Marvel Cinematic Universe and everything you need to know. I'm
1: Trey. And I'm Jude. And I'm Jude. God, why can't I introduce my name? This is two weeks, <laughs> two weeks in a row. I can't say my own name. Oh, How are you, man. Trey? <laughs> I,
0: I'm doing fantastic. I love it. I love this streak that we have. Yeah. Actually, are we keeping that? I assumed we were. Okay, because I did it to you last week. I didn't know. I didn't know if I could do it two weeks in a, <laughs> a row.
1: <laughs> well, I just moved on, like we're keeping it. So, cool. Let's keep yeah. it. I uh, I'm doing well. How are you? <laughs> uh, good. Summer's summer's almost. Uh, I want to say summer's almost upon me. I, I'll go through the end of July. But but my wife had her last day of school, and we had a celebratory drink, and then a walk to make up for it. <laughs> That's awesome.
0: I uh, I feel that man. I, I I don't know if I've mentioned on podcast, but you know, I'm I'm in lawn service, and it's getting hot. It sucks. Oh yeah, I definitely yeah. feel summer here. <laughs> do, do you wear Do you wear a mask?
1: And, and I do and not yes. not COVID wise, but like just in general, like some face kind of mm-hmm. face covering. Yeah.
0: No, I I should have. I probably should have because I do have asthma, but I was always like headstrong about it. Uh-huh. Um. But with COVID and everything, I've started wearing one, and I don't think I will go back to not wearing it okay. because it's like I can notice the difference. Like normally around yeah. this time, like I will have a lot of problems <laughs> with my asthma acting mm-hmm. up more than usual, and it has been completely fine this year. Oh. So I, I, I'm going to keep wearing that mask. Nice. And to keep it on topic, it's uh, I alternate between a Captain America one and a
1: Spider Man one. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, remember I had, I'm waiting to have delivered the Spider Man mask. That I ordered from this replica. They basically a company that makes replica costumes, mm-hmm. and That's they made a face cool. mask. So I, I ordered me for one from there. So yeah,
0: I you sent me that link. I never really dug deep, but I kind of want a Winter Soldier one. I think that'd be really cool. They make one. They, do, I'm buying. They've it. added. I, I'm straight up gonna buy. They've it added. I know what I'm doing after this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and i guess we can link in the show notes too if people want yeah, to see yeah we'll, uh, we'll put, a, the we can put a link
1: in the show notes uh to that to that mask um maybe even uh because uh, i found him on instagram so yeah
0: but anyway we are here to discuss our daredevil rewatch we are currently on season one episode eight titled shadows in the glass So we open up with Fisk waking up from a stressful dream. He grounds himself by looking at the familiar painting that he bought in his introductory episode. And after that, he goes about his morning routine until we get a little bit more insight on the way that he views himself at the end of the scene.
1: Okay, I'm going to start with um, two things. I I liked, um, you know, they've already mentioned when... Vanessa asked you know about the painting He said yeah I look at it first thing every morning And I liked how this kind of gave us Into some insight into that comment And the mm-hmm. next thing um, I made sure to jot down the music It was the um, Sweet what cello suite number one G major by Johann Sebastian Bach It's on one of my mm-hmm. uh, Spotify playlist uh, The main thing I wrote down Was I wish I knew how to make An omelet and that's what I <laughs> And that's that's my goal for the summer.
0: Well, look if it gives you any any confidence here, I have it's my head that that omelet we see him making was not the first attempt. I think Fisk <laughs> is learning how to make an omelet too because when he starts, it's dark, and then by the time he's eating it, it looks like it's mid morning.
1: <laughs> it's mid morning. There you go.
0: So mm. I really I want to believe that in this heavy heavy episode, the one shining light we have is that Fisk is learning how to make omelets. <laughs>
1: by himself (laughs) trial and error Uh. (laughs) so yeah
0: but no i mean another note that i have is i mean there's not too much to expound on it's just just something i found noteworthy you know it's interesting that we've seen more scenes with fisk vulnerable than we have seen him like in command and intimidating oh yeah Um, yeah yeah it's again we we keep mentioning it but a testament to the restraint that marvel has but after, after the way this episode ends, I think we're about to see that shift.
1: Yeah. Now, I, I do want to ask you this question. I mean, because some of the things I did note down aside from that, like there's a lot of dark clothes when he sees himself in the mirror as a child. Um, they cut back and forth enough that clearly he always sees himself in that light, mm-hmm. right? And he and of all the clothes, they're all dark. But even of the light clothes, he picks the dark clothes. Mm-hmm. One of the things I found interesting is he had a lot of cufflinks, he chose his dad's and we already know that he wears his dad's every day. I don't think they showed us in this episode or at all thinking about or just trying to remember the rest of the episodes of something that would have happened that caused that. Like, like I was wondering, like, why would he have that many cufflinks and wear the same ones? Like, like, I'm just wondering if there was something that, that triggered this, you know what I mean? Um, that triggered
0: him to only use those. yeah,
1: like if this is something new for him and I don't think they ever actually tell us that or show us that. Uh, mm-hmm. but that is something that watching this opening scene and all those cufflinks really made me kind of wonder you know mm-hmm. I mean because it was one among many rather than opening the drawer and it's like these cufflinks, you know, it's almost like a shrine to the cufflinks and sacred. Mm-hmm. You, you know, well, so yeah.
0: Well, I think, I mean, one of the the themes that, I, that we've seen throughout this episode is that there's the person Fisk wants to be, and then there's the person he feels trapped as, which is still that little kid. Because, I mean, we haven't really detailed it, but whenever he sees himself in the mirror, it is a bloodied version of a younger him. And the way, like, if you notice, you know, the music's very dramatic, it shifts, and it's meant to kind of be, like, intimidating. But if you look at Fisk, he is not startled. Like he's used to this. This is how he's always seen himself. Yeah. So regarding the cufflinks, my maybe one potential insight into it could be he has all those cufflinks because he wants to kind of move on from that moment. But every time he goes to make that decision, he's still beholden to wearing his dad's cufflinks. Yeah.
1: No, I, I think you're right on how he, well, like well, how he sees himself, right? Like this mm-hmm. is, um, it's startling for us, but it's definitely not startling for him because I think that's normal for him. Mm. You know? Yeah. Um, I mean, the episode too is called "Shadow in the Glass," right? And I think the first, for as a viewer, the that's a that's a very jarring kind of change. So that fits the episode title and where they're pushing us with this uh, with this episode.
0: And again, I just want to you know commend it again because you you picked up on it a couple episodes back. How much being referred to as a child is such a sore spot for him, or like a, a point of. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, a paint point and it's it's amazing that they were able to seed that all the way back in those episodes and then we get to this point where we see more into it right
1: right well and it just shows a good level of uh detailed planning from the start Mm -hmm. yeah So
0: after that we get our title sequence and when we get back from the title sequence, we are back at Matt's apartment. It's still destroyed and Matt is slow to wake up and basically surveys the damage from his previous confrontation with Stick. And as he leaves his apartment, he takes one last look at the ice cream paper before heading out. To me, the first thing that I noted... And it almost feels like it's cheating. I'm gonna do my best not to like continue to to knock the previous episode. But I will say this seeing the two beer bottles shattered together was incredibly effective, but it bums me out we never saw a scene where they shared a beer. Because as far as I remember, it was just Stick drinking a beer. Right,
1: Stick had the beer and didn't like it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well no, and I, I like the I liked how they, they ended on the ice cream wrapper. You know? Mm-hmm. I mean, because we talked about it in the last episode how Stick became that father figure, right? Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, it's almost kind of mirrors the end of the last episode. I mean, yes, he's not bloody, right? But clearly, Matt hasn't fully moved on or recovered mm-hmm. from this hurt of Stick leaving. Yes. I mean, otherwise, why hold on to it? You know, so, so in that mm-hmm. way, they're both damaged from their past, you know.
0: And I, and I think that's great to point out. I think you framing it that way helped me appreciate it a little bit more. And then, as we said, with the A.B. Cadence coming in and getting this very Fisk-fathered-centric episode, they are good companion pieces. And it's and as much as we've seen Fisk and Matt you know, contrasted throughout this episode, it, it's nice that they took the time to do it together in this opening of the episode. Right. Yeah. Also, Charlie Cox is amazing. I think this is probably one of his better episode not that he's done bad but it's just like right. this moment here was amazing acting and then in a scene coming up where he was kind of shifting into like a parental mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. figure with karen and foggy it's just the range that charlie yeah. cox has is great
1: yeah and i think it's just very next scene you're talking about with the parental right um we go to karen and foggy or bantering at nelson and murdoch um kind of discussing how to move forward almost in an excitement kind of way i feel like mm-hmm of like, oh, this, well, he calls it Nancy Drewing together Mm -hmm. um, and makes this comment on the coffee. And then when they realize Matt's going to show up, they kind of get quiet really quick. So hopefully he wouldn't find out.
0: You know, it's really funny that you kind of frame it as them being excited because it kind of like conjures this imagery of like, Children like oh, yeah. in on a secret yeah. being exciting, yeah, and, and that's that's basically my first note. I find it hilarious how much the dynamic of the scene feels like a parent scolding two children. I, I think it's a side of Matt we haven't seen before, mm-hmm. and I think that super protective nature is it feels like his own frustrations are coming out on them because we've we've talked a lot about how do you handle justice is it the v- vigilante side or is it this lawyer side? And we already saw the damage his vigilante side took in these previous two episodes, and so I think he's making up for it with the lawyer side here.
1: Well, one of the things I wanted to ask you, and I noted, and I was just curious if you noted the same thing, so they're kind of laying out the reasons why to Matt, and Matt's, you know, figuring out his stuff, Um, and I forgot Matt's question. I wish I would have wrote it down, but Foggy's response was, we already took care of it, talking about the two guys that attacked Karen in the alley, uh, saying that they took care of it. Does Foggy really believe if it's like this deep of a conspiracy they're trying to uncover that that took care of it I mean
0: you know I mean it it definitely is it shows how out of his depth Foggy is yeah because either either he's just trying to make Matt feel better or he is unprepared for how deep this could actually go
1: right (laughs) because I'm just like "What, what do you know like like well, and you know, like they tried to have Karen killed, mm-hmm. well framed for murder, and then when it didn't work, just kill her in the gel cell. Like mm-hmm. you didn't take care of it with the bad and softball. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I don't, I don't know why that stood out to me, but it, you know.
0: I mean, look, I don't want to dunk on foggy but it's been his mo so far i mean he made these plans to help cardenas and he fixed one sink and we've yet to see him back in her apartment (laughs) so maybe he thinks it's short-term
1: fixes (laughs) well yeah uh but also i do think that thinking about it it probably plays in it also plays into what you were saying about um not only did matt play this kind of parental figure uh the two of them Mm again really played into that child role and maybe that was part of it that i'm a child or this character is a child at the moment and kind of naive of what is really going on
0: i think we'll see that carry on with more of the scenes that they have because they the way they wrote foggy in this episode is just that he's raring to go like he wants to don't think about what they're doing just go out there and, and get to the action and so it could be it's just a case of the writing trying to force him that way. Not necessarily in a bad way, but like yeah. heightening that yeah. aspect of him.
1: Yeah. I I liked how at the end of this scene, mm-hmm. you know, um, once they did convince Matt and he's, uh, it was interesting. He was emphasizing the law. We know the law. We'll use the law. But when they ask what's rule two, he says, I don't know. I'm making this up as I go along. And the way the shot goes, like it was clear that he's talking about not just that, but being Daredevil. Um, Mm -hmm. and I don't know if this was just a happy accident and, you know, kind of a Bob Ross tree, happy accident kind of way. Um, or if it was really planned, but you could see the red tint, the way it was, the camera was angled the way that it was lit. You could see in his glasses that the glasses had a red tint to it. And so to me, like noticing that kind of really reinforced visually you know, he's talking about both sides of that identity.
0: That's a good catch. I didn't pick up on the, the red tent, but happy accident or not, that's a really awesome way that that played out. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I, I love that exchange a lot. Though. I don't know. I'm making this up as I go along. It, it, I kind of touched on it a little bit, but just to kind of hammer on the point, uh, you know, Matt feels incredibly worn down. Him being struck with the lawyer side of the spectrum offers some insight of where he's at emotionally. Mm-hmm. And, and like you said, it, it shows what he's trying to do for both being a lawyer and daredevil.
1: Well, in going all the way back to the last time we saw him with Claire and he has that Mm -hmm. conversation, he didn't outright say, I'm making this up as we go, but it's, you kind of get that feel to it. And then you have the whole episode with Vladimir where we have finally established that no death code, right? And then whether it was well done or not challenged or he's challenged in some way through stick, all of that, that kind of span kind of culminated in that line of like, yeah, uh, it's almost, a, you know, that realization of, yeah, I got nothing.
0: It's, it, it sucks to see Matt kind of hit this low. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only other note that I have for this scene is that I really like that Matt's feelings. Once they bring up Ben Uric, his feelings towards Ben mirror the way that Ben feels about the black mask. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause I, I wrote it down. Um, you know, I believe Foggy says he seems like a good guy, and then Matt responds, "Is everyone is until they're not?" Which is
1: very similar to what Ben said, um, right in the in that scene with Karen in the car.
0: Right, because I think Ben says something along the lines: "There's no heroes or villains, just people with different agendas." Right,
1: right. I don't know.
0: It peeking ahead, it makes their inevitable meeting in this episode really cool.
1: Yeah. Also, I noted you mentioned Ben, like his sources better be really tight. Because I know they mentioned, okay, Karen signed the paper, and she's not the one going public. But if she's his main source, she did go public and violate the legal contract. So, mm-hmm. like, and that was something else that you know ran through my mind. Yeah, you know, and and I feel like they've written Ben and a, Ben's character in such a way that he's mindful of that, mm-hmm. you know, fact. So,
0: and, and we can touch on that more because he he blatantly states it uh, in his, the, a scene towards the end. Yeah. And I I definitely have more to, to touch on there yeah. when we get okay, there. Okay,
1: so let's let's hold that.
0: Yeah. Meanwhile, Fisk and Wesley are having a meeting with Nobu. Nobu is incredibly angry that Fisk didn't live up to his promise regarding the black sky at the docks, and their argument ultimately ends with Nobu storming out of the meeting upset.
1: Right. I like that it reaffirms um, something from last episode where... Stick was like basically used Fisk to get Matt to help with them. You remember? Mm-hmm. Like, and he was like, Yeah, if you beat up Black Sky, Fisk will be scared. And then clearly, Fisk had no idea what that was. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I on this have to side with Fisk on this side. The cops didn't show up. Right. Like, too bad, Nobu. Sorry. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I can't I can't foresee everything.
1: <laughs> well yeah. You know, I did like I in this scene I liked Wesley the most, uh, Go co figure. But um, <laughs>
0: it's hard not to. Yeah.
1: Well I just cause it was little eye movements in there, like nobody would say something and and you could get and they said it in dialogue. He's like, Did you get that? He said, Yes, the rest are clear in any language. But the mm-hmm. way Wesley's facial expressions and kind of his his quick eye glances and glares, mm. you know, you really got a sense like you could tell what the conversation was, just through reading Wesley's face without him uh, actually having to translate.
0: Yeah, and he does an amazing job at that. Uh, there's a there'll be a scene we get to eventually where he he said so much without having to say anything at all. Yeah, but on the topic of Wesley, um, you know, the, the thing that that was I think the most impactful in this scene is that. In this episode, we see a lot of people turning their backs on Fisk, but Wesley even starting to have some doubts is huge. Uh, he he's remained steadfast through so much of what they've been through, and to see him start to doubt Fisk's leadership and like start to go through like, you know, what exactly does Nobu bring to the table that the others didn't? And I don't know. It it, it we see so many of those cracks in in that group that I originally read as all being equals and uh-huh. the infighting has definitely taken effect.
1: Oh yeah. Oh that's interesting I didn't read that that way on Wesley. I mean like my note on that was you know up until this point I felt like Wesley was on the same page as Fisk like mm-hmm. like he he saw the whole picture in the same way that Fisk does and, and mm-hmm. that's why they were so close and why Wesley was such a good assistant right hand man whatever you want to call him man in the chair, whatever. Um, but clearly here, he doesn't know a lo- some things or see the whole picture, you know? Mm-hmm. And and I, I only assume that that's intentional by Fisk of keeping him in the dark.
0: You know, that's interesting to point out. Uh, and I feel like I, I keep doing this a lot, but this episode has so much meat to it that it we can't help but call to further hooks down the road. But I, I want to touch on you, st- Keeping Wesley in the dark. Uh, whenever we have that meeting with Gal, because I had a question when we get there. Mm-hmm. You know, the the thing that I think I walked out of, well, not walked out of the thing I came out of this scene the most was this episode does a wonderful job of making me feel bad for Fisk, and I do not like that. Like I'm uncomfortable with how much I'm sympathizing with Fisk.
1: Right. Right. Uh, yeah, but I mean, let's jump to MCU proper for a second and think about Infinity War, and you know, Infinity War was Thanos's movie. Started with him, ended with him. His He's his arc. He's the character we're really following. And for a lot of people, that was jarring because you're just not used to that. And I feel like mm-hmm. that's kind of the way this episode is tracking with um, Fisk, right? Yeah. Like this is his episode. Most definitely, yeah. Um, and so we're going to feel sympathetic towards him. I mean, even if you think about the scenes we get with, Matt uh, not so much Of the ones we just finished But even thinking ahead to some of them Even those are kind of from Fisk's point of view I think I had to think about that hmm. a, a little bit before I go that Way out onto that limb but
0: mm-hmm. But
1: yeah eh, not all of them But one of them, <laughs> one, of them in, one of them One of the scenes in particular I'm thinking of um, with, with Daredevil Almost seems more from Fisk's Point of view than Daredevil's
0: Are you talking about his meeting with...
1: No, no, no. I'm talking about the hospital.
0: Oh, yeah, 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 yeah.
1: Yeah. So, and I didn't want to say too much because I know we go in sequentially. So, so yeah.
0: Okay. Well, we can revisit that when we get there. Okay. So this next scene is a flashback scene where it is featuring Wilson Fisk's childhood and he is helping his dad make signs for his campaign for city council.
1: I loved how they started this scene Um, Mm -hmm. because you you get music from the last scene that carries over into the next and I love that they did the slow-mo to really let us get oriented into the flashback you Mm -hmm. know I mean you got to take in the clothes the haircut the cars playing stickball um,
0: I was gonna say nothing establishes the flashback scene like kids playing stickball in the middle of the street. Yeah,
1: especially if you're in New York, right? Like that's just a, <laughs> you know, a, a, not that I've ever done that or been to New or I've been to New York, but but you know, played stickball in the streets in New York. But it, it's a common stereotype uh, in, in mm-hmm. shows. Um, but I just I like the way because they started it and it was slow. They let you get oriented and then they they sped up, you know, and, mm-hmm. and brought it back to normal speed. So I, I like that use. Uh, the camera there
0: man. So you and I have had some conversations uh, off podcast about how we knew going into this episode, that it was going to be really hard and um, a heavy episode to discuss. And it, I mean, obviously it starts here with this scene with Fisk and his father. You know, it's funny. I, I kind of touched on it a little bit with sticks, uh, machismo and kind of that like abusive way that he was handling young Matt. Mm-hmm. Uh, it goes even a step further here because mm-hmm. I mean, the toxic masculinity is just all too real. And
1: well, you know, they took, yeah. Well, I was just gonna say the other thing is it's such a slow build over the episode, too, of like what you mm-hmm. get in this scene, right? Because I mean, clearly he doesn't have much respect for his wife, right? And he's getting that across to his son. But in the way they cut and the way they block and frame, you slowly get the reveal you know, the way he talked to her about the music, what you don't like music and no, I just don't like it loud. But eventually they frame it to where you clearly see a bruise on her arm, um, on her left arm. And that comes on a wide shot right after his line that to his son that says, you got to give respect if you want respect. And then they cut to her with kind of this glance up, you know, and then she looks back down. It was, it was really interesting how, in subtle ways, they really wanted you to focus in on on the mom, I thought. Mm-hmm. And, it, and
0: almost the way, like you say, the way they cut back with Bill sharing his warped vision of the world and the, you know, quote unquote, this is how to be a man and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, the way mm-hmm. the camera cuts back, it almost makes you feel like you're part in that scene, like a nervous child, like looking back and forth for permission on how to feel, if that makes sense. It does. It does.
1: And, and I, no, go ahead.
0: I was going to say, I think that's that's really well done on their part.
1: Yeah, well, and, and they put they put it's interesting in my notes when I'm talking about in these flashbacks I say Wilson I wrote I mm-hmm. don't know why I just naturally wrote Wilson for the younger character and Fisk for the older character, but the way if I yeah like he was between the two of them like blocking wise throughout the entire scene until one point she walks into the kitchen, walks back out and that's the how where she kind of starts to push back. How are we going to pay for all this stuff? And he says, you don't know about nothing. Mm-hmm. And when he says that, he gets slightly aggressive at the beginning. And just a hint of aggression in his voice, but it wasn't full on yet. And then you see her even kind of pull back and wince a little bit and, and look down, um, you know, basically they cower. And so what I find interesting there is like that's the first time I think in that scene we see the two of them without Wilson buffering, you know, between them mm-hmm. is when he get he got m- the most aggressive with her. Well, in, in terms of p- potential physical aggression, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I mean, because I, I, one of the notes that I wrote down, uh, you know, this warped ideology is already teetering on a very thin wire and everyone, everyone around him is walking on thin eggshells. You know, I you mentioned about how he borrowed money. I just, I just wanted to point out. I thought it was really cool to note that the person he borrowed money from was Rigoletto, mm-hmm. which was the same name that was dropped in episode three when we meet Ben. And it was cool mm-hmm. that they tied that all in mm-hmm. together.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I like that you mentioned that about Ben and his. Because um, it really, that's something that they've been pushing this whole time about Ben's age and getting. Eh, too old for doing what he's doing is is kind of how I take it.
0: Last thing I want to note here, uh, as we exit this scene, is that we've got a very very harrowing foreshadowing. Where obviously this entire time Bill's been working on his campaign signs, and the scene ends with him taking a nail and hammering it through, and it's on his forehead. Something to something to keep in mind mm-hmm. that you uh, that we'll get to in the later part of the episode. Well, I
1: tell you, they made sure we didn't miss it because off the mm-hmm. the hammering the nail they use the echo from that to get us to this next scene, um, you know, to, to transition back to the present. Um, and in this next scene, as we get a couple of things, we, we start off, I believe with Wesley making a phone call to Fist, essentially letting him know that Blake woke up from his coma and the potential problems that could cause. We also see a little bit later, Matt, Karen and foggy doing some research and Karen coming across an updated uh, I guess what New York bulletin uh, paper mm-hmm. article saying that uh, Blake's awake and Matt shows or at least let's put it this way it piques Matt's interest
0: I just want to point out you know that was good catch on you last week wondering about the wording of Ben and Karen's conversation where they specifically mentioned being in a coma because mm-hmm. um, we were wondering about it then and we get to see it now that you know we're revisiting that that situation in this episode
1: yeah and I remember last week something I questioned is why the creators didn't just kill Blake. They, I, I would say they found an interesting or creative way to use that character, uh, for, in this episode. So <laughs> it, it makes sense why they didn't kill him, uh, here. Mm-hmm. And maybe I was just too trigger happy <laughs> last week.
0: <laughs> yeah. You know, another thing that came out of this scene, once, once the whole Blake revelation switches over to Karen and foggy, you know we've mentioned how Karen and Foggy have great chemistry, but definitely not great enough for Foggy to pull off referring to her as K. And uh, I'm really glad Karen called that out because I didn't want to have to get used to that the entire series. Right,
1: right. Well, and I I liked her reaction to it, and mm-hmm. like from an actor standpoint, like it just seems so natural. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, if, if, if that makes, sense. I'm always impressed with actors when because you know they're acting. Um, and mm-hmm. just but when they make things like that so natural
0: it, it definitely feels like friends just kind of like laying into each other back and forth and it's yeah it's it's good work on their part Oh yeah Um, another thing that kind of gets born out of this scene is you know we've already kind of seen the way foggy feels about the man of the black mask uh, I think one of the first times he's prompted to have an opinion about him he has that blanket statement of, you know, anybody who wears a mask, you can't trust them. And we've we've been kind of seeing that play out. But there is a point where they're discussing the fact that Blake is awake and Foggy or Matt says, I'd be interested to see what he has to say. And Foggy says something like, yeah, I would, too. Man, th- it's odd to me how much this conflict between them feels manufactured mm-hmm. and I've, I've peeked ahead because I've seen like the episode title list and I know we've got an episode called Nelson versus Murdoch, but it, it feels like they're writing to this point rather than it being something that's been naturally occurring between them.
1: Right. Right. No. Because it,
0: it wouldn't, it wouldn't make sense because Foggy's, well, I guess it would because they did have that argument about whether or not they would defend him. So I take that
1: back. Yeah. But, but I mean, I think your point is, is well made because we've already mentioned We'll take the foggy Karen relationship. It feels mm-hmm. like they had a particular end in mind mm-hmm. that they and and I realize story writing, you know, storytelling writing, you're gonna sit down with an outline, you're gonna put out your plot points, you're gonna know how it ends, right? And you're gonna mm-hmm. know your beginning and you're gonna then you start writing and you have redrafts and and, and I realized the process. But it felt like that it was so forced you know and especially when you consider the performances right and the chemistry the two of them had and it feels like the writing forced them in a way the the on-screen chemistry and i think you're saying the same thing about mad and foggy and their on-screen um chemistry as friends mm-hmm. you know yep. it, it just works so well it's being forced down that road because there's there's not outside of like ideology there's not a real big conflict yet that, that just should drive them in that direction.
0: Cause at the bulk of it, Foggy's problem is with the man in the black mask and everything he's quote unquote done. Right. And so for like, I get, they had the argument about whether or not they would defend him, but the way Foggy delivers its line, it's like, he's kind of angry at Matt where he doesn't know that Matt's the man in the black mask. So it kind of doesn't mm-hmm. make sense to have that much animosity. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Another note that I had, uh, and I mean, it's just really echoing what we've already talked about, but, uh, you know, seeing Matt being so strict about doing the things by the law, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I I think there's a part of him that wishes this was enough. Uh, We see how eager Foggy is to get out there and crack some skulls, but having Matt reprimand him just illustrates that conflict aside about what you said of, you know, what is the best way to handle justice. Right,
1: right. Well, and it reinforces Matt feels like he has to do this. Which mm-hmm. is really interesting, because it's, I mean, if you're, if one side of your personality is just this, this true sense of justice, uphold the law, do things the right way, to fall into vigilantism, is the best way, because this is ineffective. Man, it it's like, it it's almost like there's a sense of despair, and and I don't know if that despairs too strong of a word but but the sense of despair and this truly doesn't work so I have to go to this other extreme
0: I think despair is a perfect word um, because peeking ahead just a little bit you see his reaction at the very end of the episode Matt is truly torn up about this right that he has to resort to these methods to make change right right so yeah I like I, I like the use of despair there after these scenes, we we find out that Fisk and Wesley want to use Hoffman to p- deliver the final blow to Blake, and in doing so, Fisk and Wesley set up a meeting with Hoffman to detail what exactly they need him to do.
1: All right. I don't have a lot of notes here, and there's a lot in this scene, but I will mm-hmm. say my first note is LOL. <laughs> technically we paid someone else to shoot him in the Wesley line, <laughs> you know? Um, I just, it, it was very, it was very Wesley. Um, it, it
0: it's <laughs> such a great Wesley line. It,
1: yeah. You know, uh, it, well, and I liked how I, I really liked how they framed or how they blocked these, uh, this scene where they had Hoffman, mm-hmm. you know, cause he said, Fist said, I'll talk to him myself, you know, And so he is kind of face to face. And I just imagine as Hoffman, that's probably intimidating, you know, but then you have Wesley behind him, just kind of over his shoulder, almost like heckling him. You Mm -hmm. know, I mean, you have that comment. He made another comment that was like, you know, I can keep my mouth shut or Hoffman says, I can keep my mouth shut. And Wesley's like, well, if we had any doubts about that, you'd be dead or we wouldn't be having this conversation, you know? And and so it, it, I mean, I'm sure that was intimidating for Hoffman and, and it showed it. Mm-hmm. I think, I think the actor showed it uh, very well.
0: Most definitely. Um, you know, playing off what you were saying about Fisk seem seeming intimidating. Um, it's great that this, I think this is the first time that we see Fisk in an imposing manner for, for the first time in this episode. Mm-hmm. And for an episode that's been showing the cracks in his stranglehold, um, you know, it, it, I'm glad they took us, took the time to show him capable. Um, Because there's this fine line that they're walking and showing Fisk as a vulnerable, scared person and someone to be reckoned with. And taking the time to give that service here uh, helps that resolve that we get to at the end of the episode be much more impactful.
1: Oh, I'd say the first time they've shown us that at all. I mean, because if you go back to when he took Anatoly's head off, you know, we talked about (laughs) that as was that a tantrum because he ruined the date. Right. Like, right. like I think we both agreed that Antoli was going to die because he wanted the war. He wanted to get rid of the Russians, but it was done in that way because the date was ruined and it was a tantrum. And this was very measured and controlled, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, I, the other, that's a good catch. The other quote I have Hoffman mentions that him and Blake go back 30, 35 years and Fisk's response. How much are each of those years worth to you? Uh, uh, the you next know, thing I wrote how much damp. Are you damp. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean. Because
0: it's, I keep coming back to this description, but that is an incredibly cold delivery. Like Fisk didn't, you know, didn't hesitate at all. Yeah.
1: It's interesting because you can clearly see that Fisk... N- at least I would say knows, but maybe just believes that everybody can be bought.
0: You know, this is something that I think is important to note is that you, we have a scene coming up where Wilson's father forced Wilson to inflict harm on someone he didn't want to. Uh And I don't think it's a coincidence that we see Fisk doing the exact same scenario here in the present with Blake and Hoffman. Um, You know, we know how much he fears being a monster or inflicting cruelty for the sake of cruelty. Um, And it, it shows the fact that he keeps waking up haunted by these memories of his father, um, I think it kind of gives us a guiding line mm-hmm. of where he's at, uh, intellect not intellectually, emotionally, I guess, in the present.
1: Yeah. Yes. Well, and to go back, I mean, before he even got to that line of, you know, how much are those 30, 35 years worth, you know, he tries to come across as merciful, right? Because mm-hmm. before we got there, Hoffman says, well, that wasn't his fault because- The man in the mask, you know, broke his arm and and whatnot. And he said, yeah, I forgive him for losing the phone. But what I can't forgive is him not alerting us to it. And that's not being attention to detail. And he's directly responsible for the mishap. So, Mm -hmm. so Fisk tried to play both sides of that. Like I am a reasonable person. I am merciful. I forgave him for this. You know, I'm not a monster.
0: I mean, because you can. I mean, you can get the read that Hoffman got more of an explanation than he deserved. Like someone of Fisk's position, he doesn't have to take the time to detail a breakdown of where, where things went wrong, but Fisk still does it. And I think it's like you said, because he's trying to justify it to himself. Yeah.
1: Well, and let's go back one more scene with Fisk, where present day Fisk, where he says to Nobu, "You didn't see police because I'm a man of honor." Mm-hmm. You know. Um. So he clearly. I, I wouldn't, for off the first scene, I don't know if I could say he clearly sees himself that way, but he clearly wants to be that way or wants to be yeah. seen that way.
0: So, after the meeting with Hoffman, uh, we arrive at the hospital where we see Hoffman very nervously stepping out of an elevator and we follow him all the way to Blake's room where he delivers the poison in his IV. But before he can get away, Daredevil knocks him unconscious and tries to get any information he can out of Blake before he passes away.
1: Okay, so Mahoney checks him in and uh, checks the bag, right? And he goes in. And one of the things I thought was like, I have to not think about this too realistically because part of me is like, well, when Hoffman leaves, Blake has gone into cardiac arrest. They're going to put two and two together or there's going to be an autopsy. You, you mm-hmm. know, um, it it just didn't seem as clean uh, uh, as possible, like like I feel like the Russians did it better, um, but <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> um, you know, uh, but it it there is that moment where, uh, you know, Hoffman says sorry and Blake wakes up, you know, um, and really Daredevil saved Hoffman in a way, because that's that's right at that moment where Daredevil knocks him out, where Blake wakes up. And I don't want to say Blake realized what was going on, but it definitely, Hoffman was startled and, you know, Daredevil wasn't there. That would have been an interesting, it'd be interesting to see how that would have played out.
0: You know, to play off that, uh, one of the notes that I wrote down, you know, there's no way Matt could have known he was too late, but it's such an unfortunate break for him that, you know, the city's already against him. And here he is in the perfect position to be framed for the death of Blake. Mm -hmm. And the worst part, he didn't even get anything out (laughs) of it.
1: Well, okay. So this is where... Blake said something to, to Daredevil, Please. but it wasn't said in an audible way to where we could know. So we don't know what he gave him. And so that's why I was saying when I felt like this episode is mainly Fisk's episode, it's almost like even this scene is from Fisk's point of view because we enter it with Hoffman who Fist sins. We end it with Daredevil gone. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and, and the cops coming in but we also don't get the information that Blake gave up. So in that way, I felt like this scene was still kind of a shot from that Fisk perspective. If if mm-hmm. that makes sense.
0: That makes a lot of sense. I like that read a lot. Yeah.
1: Um. And, and so, yeah, like I'm curious. So what did uh, Blake give? Cause I, I, I mean, looking ahead to some other scenes, I feel like Blake did give something up, Um. you know, cause Cause that daredevil says that, you know, so here we don't get it. Uh, the other thing I did note, uh, what I found interesting is the, um, I wrote down no kill code. Part of me was like, okay, wait a minute. You're in a hospital. Like you just went and you said, okay, I don't have a lot of t- you don't have a lot of time left. The blood's already to your heart. You can help this or no one can help you. And I thought, no, 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 no. You're in a hospital. People, you're you're exactly in the right place to be to get help <laughs> in that situation if there's any chance yeah like <laughs> this is the place yeah. like like there's no 911 call there's in fact the monitors you're attached to are beeping <laughs> like you had to brace the door like so the fact that you didn't that Blake didn't get help anymore it was directly the cause of Daredevil you know, And he was fine with that to get his information.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Man, you've changed the scene for me twice <laughs> in these last two notes. Because uh, now I need to think about that and watch it with that lens. But I, I want to go back to what you said, because I, I personally didn't pick up on the fact that Blake whispered something to him that we didn't see. and Because I had captions on, and I, I had a question for you. What didn't Blake mean by, is it my turn for this? Because that was the only thing I saw Matt get out of him, but I guess I missed somehow that he whispered something to him as well.
1: You know what? I, I don't know because I I watch it with captions too, and I didn't mm-hmm. I didn't note that caption, so I I am not sure.
0: I I just took it as maybe you know on death's doorstep delusional s- yeah. speech, but
1: yeah yeah. So I'm I'm honestly but, uh, not sure. And honestly, as show writers, God, you don't you don't actually need him to give up anything you just need to show it you know yeah i mean because at that point he is i assume dead this time uh i mean if he comes <laughs> back like we we think who's the superhero um of the show <laughs> but but yeah it's um yeah i don't know I'm, i have to think about that because i i even missed that in the caption
0: um the only other thing that i wanted to to point out uh just because it's been fun for me to track uh, i believe this is like when we get into this scene for the first time with Hoffman coming out of the elevator, mm-hmm. uh, this is the third long take that we've seen so far. I mean, it, a bit of a shorter one, but still kind of the camera doesn't cut as it like yeah. follows towards the elevator and then follows right. Hoffman back to the door of the hospital room. Right. And um, I, I've just been really impressed with the way that they've employed this technique in different ways ways this series yeah you know first time was the hallway fight where it depicted the weight of the fight second time was the suspenseful car swirl and then here the way that it conveys that level of anxiety that Hoffman is feeling mm-hmm. um it you feel that walk with them and I I like that they did that oh yeah
1: yeah well I I I like the way you said that that it conveys those levels of anxiety um mm-hmm. and, and adds weight without those cuts
0: Yeah, and then once, like, he actually gets to Mahoney, the way it pulls out of that slow motion, you you get that sense of, like, he's in his own head, and then, bam, right back to here's here's the moment that he is dreading. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So, after that scene, we are greeted by Leland, who is being outfitted by one of Fisk's tailors, and they are having some conversations about what would happen if Leland dies, and after... Wesley arrives to deliver some bad news Leland can't help but interject his own two cents throughout the conversation
1: right okay so this Taylor is Melvin Potter uh, and the comic book villain the gladiator and actually at some point um, turns and sides with Daredevil um, mm-hmm. and one of the things he is good at is exactly what he's doing in the show making that specialized armor mm-hmm. clothing armor if, if you will
0: I've been really looking forward to getting back to this character because, again, I've seen this before, but it's been so long. I remembered this dynamic of Mr. Potter, mm-hmm. and I've I've been really excited to kind of like re-examine these details of, of you know, obviously he's someone close to Fisk, but... I don't want to give anything away, but we, we see mm-hmm. uh, his character develop in the rest of the season. Right.
1: So I didn't have a lot of notes necessarily on this episode. Like I had the mention of Melvin Potter as a, the comic book villain, but the biggest line that stuck out to me was Leland uh, says situations being handled. All right. Just not by you. And, mm-hmm. and with that line, you could see Fisk really get rattled, yeah. you know, um, and and you do get that feeling like he's, and you mentioned before, that infighting and he's losing his grip of control.
0: Uh, here's what I wrote down because I didn't have too many notes either. But I wrote, I only make this note because I know you, dude, have been watching Community. But do you remember that episode where the study group gets completely insufferable because they had taken over the school with the chicken tenders? And then they all <laughs> slowly start to lose respect for Abed? Yeah, yeah that is what this episode has been for Fisk <laughs> everybody just does not respect Fisk in this
1: episode <laughs> oh, man. well I mean a side note you bring that up I loved how that episode was basically Goodfellas right yeah you know and and, oh, and it, it makes so it, it makes so much sense that they would connect that episode to here because uh, mm-hmm. he's a crime boss you know and they're doing <laughs> what crime boss things
0: uh, so yeah This is completely tangential. My experience with Goodfellas is via community. I have not seen Goodfellas. I just know what it was a send up to. (laughs) Add
1: that to your list. Like if you like mob movies, and I like mob movies, but if you like mob, which is weird, I haven't seen The Irishman and I like mob movies. Um, I haven't seen it either. But if you like mob movies, you need to watch Goodfellas. In fact, I would say go watch Goodfellas before you see The Irishman if you decide to do that.
0: Okay um but no yeah Yeah. back back to daredevil um you know you know we're talking about how leland has has lost respect for fisk and we saw nobu too but at least with nobu there was more of a legitimate reason for nobu to be angry even if we've already established we're on fisk's side there was more of that catalyst for anger um here with leland it's just more incredibly disrespectful and that he just doesn't fear him at all no no no
1: because Leland brings up um, what happened in the previous episode of Daredevil finding him. Remember, because mm-hmm. he says, you know, um, if you found me, you'll find me one more time or find me again. Uh, so Fist says, I'll put six guards on you. And he says, no, make it 12. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Leland says something to the effect of, you know, I, I know what he does dropping people off of roofs. And if he drops me, a whole lot of money goes with it. And Fisk asks, is that a threat? And he's like, no, I'm just stating the obvious and never thought I'd have to do that uh, with you.
0: Well, I can, I guess if I'm going to give Nobu a pass for it not being Fisk's, well, how how am I trying to word this? Because essentially, like, I get that Leland was upset with the fact that Daredevil found him, but I didn't see how that was Fisk's fault. But I guess the larger picture, it is kind of, Fisk's responsibility mm-hmm. to take care of the money man. Yeah,
1: well, and it's interesting because I mean, all of them. I mean, if, if Leland's doing your money, it's go back to Batman and Nolan, and well, <laughs> I mean, it, it was uh, Lau, right? Like, mm-hmm. they they Lau's plan went to, to Hong Kong, and Joker pointed out Batman has no jurisdiction. He can get to Hong Kong, you know, and, and get Lau. <laughs> well, and it's it's the same way with Leland, you know. Uh, the difference yeah. is Leland has that arrogance because he knows it, mm. you know? Oh, God. Yeah. Well, and that's why he can comfortably make all those jabs to him.
0: God, man, the way that he just kept interjecting himself in that conversation with Fisk and Wesley, God, it was so irritating. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Made me so angry. And and then my, my last note, why do I feel bad for Fisk? <laughs> question mark, question mark, question mark. <laughs>
1: Well, it's interesting at this point that you're feeling sorry for Fisk because we end this scene with uh, comforting words from his mom, right? As a voiceover transitioning into a young Fisk crying at a table. Uh, You can see that he's clearly beat up and mom offers him some Zupa, his favorite dessert. Uh, And he's being, I'd say, very motherly and having a tender moment. And then uh, Bill Fisk, dad, shows up and uh, causes chaos. We... (laughs) And I'm scared of
0: like saying this because I don't want to paint a light that I'm trying to show any sympathy towards Bill. So I'll I'll just preface by saying this: like I I clearly get Bill's villainy here, but you know I I mentioned earlier how they did a good job of like grounding that with the misogyny Mm -hmm. and the toxic masculinity. Mm -hmm. But for the briefest moment, they give us like an insight to his psyche with the way he responds. Because we find out, you know, the reason that Wilson was bullied was because he came across this kid that was knocking down Bill's signs. Right. And so Bill retaliates and makes Wilson go confront this kid and, you know, he loses it and he he's abusing this kid and gets him on the ground. And he starts yelling at the kid where he goes, uh, I wrote it down, what did he say? You think it's funny when a man puts himself out there? And you can see that vulnerability in in Bill at that moment. right? And it it was nice that they included that.
1: Right. Well, and and it's a couple of things. I mean, it's nice they included that. Um, Well, I mean, in a little detail, like you see in the first time we see mom, there was a bruise on the left arm. Mm -hmm. This time there's more bruises, not just the Mm -hmm. left arm, more on the left arm, more on the right. So there's more bruises. And, but take that away. And, Like this is a moment stereotypically you'd expect a father, son, right? Son gets beat up and bullied. Dad wants to help, you know, or fix things and help him confront a bully, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and and so it's a weird, there was a weird sense of like, he's trying again. I, I hate to paint him in a positive light, but it's like, It's, right. like he's, it's inc- well, yeah, but it's like, he's trying to be a dad, but just doesn't know how to be a decent human being.
0: Yeah. It's like, you see how hurt he is, but his only solution is to take it out with violence. Right, And it's just, it's, it's like watching someone come close to the right thing, but just completely miss it by a mile. Right.
1: right. Um, and I don't know. Let me ask you this. I noted he when he walked in, you know, first off, he called Wilson fat, you know,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, not directly to him talking to, to I keep saying mom Ma- Marlene, um, I believe it was her name. Uh, yes. Namer. That's poor on my part. But he says to Marlene, like that kid's fat enough already. So he's talking directly to her, but says that about him right in front of mm-hmm. him. Um, And he had a stain on his shirt. Was uh, I couldn't tell. Was he drunk? Was Like, was he drunk in that stain because he'd been drinking? Or was that stain more of just kind of to show just the overall lack of care for anything? Does that make sense?
0: No, that completely makes sense because when we see him the first time, he's very well-kempt. I think his shirt's tucked in and he's, you know almost jovial because he thinks he's on this one-way ticket to city council. And then when we see him here, he's a, lo- a little bit more disjoubled. Um regarding the question of being drunk. I personally didn't even get a hint of that. Okay. So I know I, I didn't read it that way, but it would make sense if that is where they're going with it.
1: Okay. Yeah. I, I just wasn't sure. I didn't, I actually didn't think he was, Um, mm-hmm. but I, and I don't think I ever thought that in previous watches before now. I don't know why that shirt stain uh, stood out to me and didn't just kind of made me wonder.
0: So after this flashback, we awaken back in the present where Fisk is clearly haunted by these memories. And we once again, start his morning routine, except this time he is interrupted by a call from Wesley informing him that gal is on her way to have a meeting.
1: Right. And he basically asks, you know, first off, I don't think Fisk realized because um, Wesley said, you know, Gal's... I don't remember how she said it, but Gal's on his on her way. And he said, okay, I'll meet you. And Wesley's like, no, 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 your place. And I don't think that really phased Fisk that much. I mean, because basically his response was, can you get here first? Uh, and Wesley's like, yeah, I'm already on my way. But the power moves of Gal in this scene and how well he she just disarmed Fisk was... I really liked how they played this scene out.
0: Me too. And I, I, I kind of want to hone in on here, um, referring to the power moves of Gal and Wesley in particular. You know, we mentioned it earlier where you kind of alluded to this idea that Fisk is keeping Wesley in the dark. Uh, in, in this scene, we see Wesley look upset two different times. Uh, once when Fisk reveals that he can speak Mandarin, and then again when he re- they reveal that he can speak Japanese. My question for you is is Wesley upset because it shows that Wesley isn't needed as much as he thought or because his boss gets revealed. I couldn't my, I couldn't quite zone in where I landed on that.
1: You know, I I I had my own question and what I find interesting is I read the I read his I read his reaction different. Mm-hmm. So, let me tell you my question and then I'll and okay. I'll tell you there. My question was do you, is are we finding out that Wesley didn't know? this could speak those languages like Wesley mm-hmm. thought he was actually translating. Cause his fist needed it. Cause all this time you have this translation and even going back to the thing with Nobu, you know, he asked, Hey, did you get that? And mm-hmm. fish response was, yes, threats are clear in any language, which kind of indicates
0: he's hiding it.
1: I, you know, I got it because of the tone, not because he understood. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think, I think you're right though onto something a little bit because The line Gal gives to reveal that was he does not need you to form my words, do you, um, do you Wilson, right? He didn't call up. She didn't say Mister Fisk. You know, she used the first name, and Mm -hmm. but the way she did that to Wesley, and -hmm. then the follow up of she was the one that dismisses Wesley. Yeah, you know, I mean. Yeah, Fisk said wait outside, but she was the one that really like she contru- completely controlled the scene. So so in some ways, yeah, I think yes, I think there's that feeling Wesley had from Gao of mm-hmm. Wow, I'm not needed and, and all of that. Uh, but I read it completely as Gao knew something about Fisk that Wesley didn't and he mm-hmm. was just finding out.
0: And I cause you You mentioned the way she frames it, where she tells Wesley, he does not need you to form my words. I mean, the way that Wilson responds, he tries to redirect it by saying, oh, you speak English. And then she pushes back and says that she knows that Fisk speaks Mandarin. So Mm -hmm. throughout the two different times that Fisk's knowledge of language comes up, he tried to redirect it both times. That scene with Wesley, like, threats are universal, and then this right here. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, and and she made basically Wesley... And to me, I wrote down, you know, I feel like she basically tried to show that Wesley was expendable.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, I kind of want to jump back here again to the beginning where, you know, Fisk wakes up and he grounds himself. Um, you know, we've, we've had this morning routine. We're going to, we have it three different times in this episode and I like the way that it reveals more about him each time. That first time we get that introduction of how he still views himself as the child, um, you know, bloodied up. And then here when he wakes up from the dream, the painting is the first thing he looks for is comfort. And again, I'm kind of peeking ahead, but it's, it's weird. I feel like this is the first episode where it's hard for us to make the points in the present without having to reference another point in the future mm-hmm, in the episode. Mm-hmm. But um, we don't know it yet, but that painting represents a clean slate. It's the last thing he sees before he makes that choice that he makes, the, the big moment of this episode. Um, you know, we know Fisk doesn't want to be a cruel person and... They're demonstrating that here with the painting where I think he longs to go back to that moment.
1: Ooh, see, I don't, I don't take it that way at all. Re- really? Yeah. And again, that's the, um, I'll save my thought for that scene. Okay. Because I think, I think it pairs better with that scene, uh, but I mm-hmm. didn't take it that way at all. Okay. You know, but I, to me in that opening of the scene, you know, I, I liked that they showed some restraint. Like they did mm-hmm. like we, we know and remember that this is how he sees himself especially the now that Mm -hmm. we've added the flashbacks, they didn't show that part, but they showed enough of that scene Mm -hmm. that it almost had feelings of like this living nightmare or this, this groundhog day kind of, and not in a Bill Murray funny way, you know, Mm -hmm. um, that Fisk has to live through and go through. If this is what he does every day, wakes up, Mm -hmm. stares at the painting takes his you know picks out his clothes makes his omelet slices up the the green onions all all of that so yeah Mm -hmm. and it it almost to me it almost reinforces that feeling you were saying a feeling sorry for him of like wow this is you know this is your life or or this is what you're maybe what you're doing to cope and get by Mm -hmm. i don't
0: have too much to expound here but
1: i i just want to put I
0: really do love the work that they've gone through to establish the friendship between Gal and Fisk Mm -hmm. Um, I mean because she specifically mentions that this is a courtesy visit uh, because she comes to let him know that she thinks he's slipping uh, and if he doesn't course correct um, you know she's going to start dealing with Leland and Nobu directly and I, I think it's a nice dynamic to the group. To, you know, you have the larger allied group that are working together for these nefarious means, but even within that group, you still have this connection with Fisk and Gal, and I like that they service it.
1: Well, that last line, you know, to me, kind of reinforces that power play, because, you know, to say that, well, A, to say that it's a courtesy, and then to say, I'm going to start dealing with Nobu and Leland directly is basically mm-hmm. letting Fisk know that you know, and she even brought up the Russians. Like, mm-hmm. I don't need you. You show me respect and I'm going to do the same, but I'm going to be up front. I really don't need you. So, which also makes it interesting. If you think about the first time we saw Fisk with the whole group and he seemed the one calling the shots and in control. And this just kind of shows us eh, that's probably more of a mirage.
0: I do want to point out, um, because the, the final moment of this scene is where Fisk has his tantrum and flips the table. Uh, I just want to point out, that table did not look light at all. No, <laughs> The fact no, that no. he flips it easily is a testament yeah. to his rage and yeah. strength. Yeah,
1: no, that was uh, a what? A, it looked like a full all marble table. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. That was, and I think they wanted us to see that rage, that strength. It fits kind of the M.O. of the losing control temper tantrum that we've mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and I only bring it up that way is because Wesley's still calm and he tells him to get out and yells at him, get out.
0: God, if we had any doubts about how much Wesley genuinely cares, the scene alone of him running back in. Right.
1: right yeah, that that should solidify it.
0: So after the meeting with Gal, we get another flashback scene where Wilson's father has instructed him to sit and stare at the wall until he thinks about the man he's supposed to be. Um, He instructs him not to look away until he gets back and as he mentions that he's leaving, his wife, Marlene, begins to question where he's going and after he has had enough, he begins to violently abuse her.
1: So, and it's interesting because like, he looks at, he stares at the wall and and here's where I start to disagree. He Mm -hmm. He stares at the wall and what his dad told him was stare at the wall And think about the kind of man you want to be until I get back. I guess in this instance, what starts the abuse? I, you know, Marlene questioned Bill in terms of getting the money from Rigoletto. You know, Mm -hmm. and that's where he was. uh, And and I found it interesting because like she's going to meet Rigoletto, and I it almost felt like she had genuine concern of like, is he going to return or not? you know, from this meeting. And, and so she starts in, you know, you shouldn't have done this or, or whatever. And this is the first time I, we see while there's hints of it in the other scene that I mentioned, uh, Bill get physical in front of Wilskin. And I'm not saying this is the first time it's happened, but this is the first time, you know, in the course of like imaginative, this is a family and this is their dynamic. Um, but as an audience, this is the first time we've seen it to this extent in, in front of Wilson and Wilson yeah. to show that fear he has of his dad, you know, starts to look away, but like, can't like he's torn between what do I look at? Do I watch this or do I look at the wall? Um, mm-hmm. And the scene actually goes fairly quick. Cause you have that bill yelling, shut up over and over again. And that transitions us to this next scene where Fisk is staring out the window. And that still is echoing in the background. You know, mm-hmm. and what I what I what I found interesting about that is we transition out of that flashback to this time. Fisk is not waking up and then staring at the painting. He is staring out into the night, into this darkness, into this abyss. You know, re- reliving this and hearing this "shut up" over and over again. You know, and in, in this sense, there's there's no centering comfort. I guess is what is the way we've been taking that wall so far, the painting. You know, mm-hmm. a, a, up to this point, then Wesley arrives and he brings, well, and actually we don't see it right away. Like he shows up and Fisk has this line says, if I needed you, I would have asked. And Wesley says, uh, I don't think that's always true, sir. Um, which to me really showed or, or cements, you know, that, okay, Wes, the, the care Wesley has for Fisk. And then he brings Vanessa in and Vanessa arrives. Uh, and what really stood out to me is she's wearing this all white dress. Right. And so mm-hmm. his comfort up to this point, or we've been calling it discomfort up to this point is that white painting. Right. And mm-hmm. we transition to the scene. And for me, it's like, you're staring out into this darkness. You're staring out into this abyss. And when we see Vanessa, because she's in this all white dress and the way she's lit, like that's what jumps out the white dress and everything else is dark. Right. And so what you have is this Vanessa now becomes this light in that darkness. Right. Mm-hmm. And she comes out, you know, says to Wesley we'll be fine. Wesley leaves. Wilson says, you know, please leave almost on the verge of tears. It seemed like, Oh yeah. and Vanessa says, you know, I will, if you really want me to, and then stays. Um, and, and she kind of in that white dress becomes the replacement for that painting. You know, and what I find fascinating is she says something in the effect of like, you promised to always be honest with me. And he was right. Like he. This is where we fade transition back into the past. Hearing that line. Shut up, shut up, shut up over and over again. But this time he's verbally saying it rather than dreaming it to Vanessa. Mm -hmm. So in that way, he fulfills that promise.
0: So, yeah, and here in this flashback scene, this is where we get to see, you know, what we kind of talked about in that foreshadowing moment in the first flashback um, after the violence that takes place between Bill Fisk and Marlene. Uh, Wilson Fisk gets up and brutally murders his father. And as he's kind of being comforted by his mother, his mother, you know, immediately says, go get the saw, and they devise this plan into Cutting Wilson's father in pieces.
1: Yeah, one of the things I found in God, it, it feels like a crutch to say one of the things I found interesting because it's it's horrific. It's not interesting. Um, yeah,
0: it, I I 100% know how you feel. I can't remember if it made the edit or not, but like it's it's hard to critique something this dark or offer insight.
1: Yeah. Um, well, and and I know how I watch this scene is from a particular lens mm-hmm. and I'm sure there's plenty of people who have experienced domestic violence and domestic abuse that mm-hmm. see these scenes in a completely different way. And so yeah. to talk about it, I don't, I, I want to be careful cause I don't want to seem like I'm downplaying anything right. um, or not understanding or trying to empathize with that, those experiences. You know, with Bill's yelling, they see you and that little bastard and they laugh and that reinforces that hurt that Bill has that you brought up, mm-hmm. you know, um, with with that other kid saying, hey, I put myself out there and you laugh, but you yeah. he realize he's not talking about just that kid, you know, and, and so you see the hurt that, that Bill's carrying as as he's yelling that, you know, and, and mm. blaming marlene and his own son for his own struggles
0: it's like all all that economic frustration and inability to provide for his family like he has and instead of having an inward look on it he can't help but take it out on everybody else like it's your fault that this is happening this to me that this didn't work out because of this and it's just like that insight into his psyche and it it's i don't know it sucks
1: yeah oh yeah well and you mentioned that insight into his psyche Like Mm -hmm. before, you know, before she starts, I mean, a it was just a chilling moment when she says, get the saw, but as she started to undress, like she hands over, which I thought it was an interesting from a creator standpoint choice to, to have her hand over the cufflings. you know, because, Mm -hmm. because clearly that becomes some kind of memento for him. Right. And, and I mean, growing up, he's, I, I take a step out in reality for a second. Growing up, he's going to have to have that sh- struggle for the rest of his life. Of this is who my dad is, and this is who my dad was, and I can't mm-hmm. change that. And this is what I did, right? And can't change that. Mm-hmm. And so the choice of handing over the cufflinks yeah. from the creators is is I found interesting um, because for me now, get, getting back into the show that wall that painting isn't about when he says I feel alone he's looking at that wall and this is the moment he lost both his parents and it was associated with oh by the way, stare at this to think about what kind of man you want to be because mm-hmm. remember shortly after this his mom sent him away to live with relatives right you know for for some time um, and I don't think we heard I think that's where the mom's Marlene story ends.
0: We never revisit it.
1: I don't think so. And so and so so, for me, that painting that kind of becomes this weird sense of this feeling of alone because he loses both his parents here, you know, at least to our knowledge. And it's just staring at that wall as a reminder of the abuse he comes from, associated with what does it mean to be male? Mm-hmm. You know, so so that's why I say I don't I don't think it's a centering comfort that he goes back to that, you know, it's, it's almost that, that pain like you, you, you have, and you can never let go when you know mm-hmm. you should, you know, it's like, yeah. Um, you know, and this is a terrible analogy, you know, in, for the situation, but I'll, I'm going to use it. It's that there's the heartbreak breakup and you have something that was given to you from them. And it was special and you hang on to it for sentimental reasons, Right, but all it ever does is bring back pain, and you yeah. really know you should let it go. That's how I, through this episode, started to see that painting.
0: So, I guess I can try and shed some light on on how, to me, I read it more of as like a not necessarily a clean slate, but it's this moment in time. I think before it it solidified a lot of the direction that Fisk went in, um, because when we jump back to the present and, and we see how. Fisk has been detailing this to Vanessa I mean he he ends his line with I'm not a monster am I like he has that like that questioning doubt and I you know going back to the I feel alone line you know we see the way Bill abused him throughout so there's no question of how Wilson gets to the point to where he gets to murder his father and to then have his mother turn around with that cold line of like get the saw at his most vulnerable moment, he had, like, nobody. Like, there was, like, from that point where he made that decision, there was nobody there to, like, help him course correct. Mm-hmm. And so he's stuck there in that past. And so for me, um, the way that it, it, not maybe Clean Slate is the wrong way to look at it, but the way the, what the painting represents to me is that when he looks at it, he's instantly teleported back to that moment before he quote unquote became the monster. And I think that's where I was trying okay. to get at. Okay. If if that makes sense. No, no, sense. no. That
1: makes sense. That makes sense. Like this is Yeah. This is that this is the the before and after. The the mm. definitive I'm the monster after and wasn't before.
0: Right. Because if if kind of going back to what I was saying, like we had the flashback where his father was making him inflict harm on the kid and then we're seeing him inflict harm, have Hoffman inflict harm on Blake. I think he's waking up, looking at that painting, hoping like, oh, am, am I the monster? Did I become cruel for the cruelty? Well,
1: and when he was hitting, um, when Wilson was hitting his dad, he was yelling, "Keep kicking him! Keep kicking him!" Which mm-hmm. is what his dad was yelling at him when when he was having him beat the kid.
0: Oh man, tough stuff. This this episode. Um, I do want to say the the other note I have is. You know, when we jump out of the the flashback and, and Vanessa and Wilson are kind of having their, their discussion about everything and, you know, she insists that it wasn't Fisk's fault and he laments, Fisk laments how there are people out there that want to destroy his name and drag him through the streets. Them using the line, drag my name through the streets. I do not think that is a coincidence that Fisk uses that line. Mm -hmm. And it was the same line that was used to praise Ben in his introductory scene. And then the very next scene we get is with Ben. Right.
1: Well, you know what I find, find interesting though, is she says, you know, it's not your fault. Uh, You were protecting your mom. And he says, I didn't do it for her. I did it for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still have mixed feelings about how I want to take that.
0: I mean, the text does, man, this is going to get us into some murky waters. So kind of, kind of to preface it, like you said earlier, like by no means am I trying to like undercut the severity of the scene or the impact it has for people who have experienced domestic violence. And I'm sure there are multiple ways to read into it, but like look back to what happens as you said he's screaming the, the keep kicking him keep kicking him if the catalyst of his emotional trauma is from that moment where his father forced him to cause harm it makes sense that he says he didn't do it for me because it's almost like he didn't even like in that moment he was so vexed by his uh, mm-hmm. hatred for what his dad mm-hmm. did to him that that's what was leading his actions
1: right, right. well and, and his dad was yeah yelling about him as mm-hmm. well as while doing it. Yeah. Um, now, in that, in the end of this, when he's telling Vanessa all this, one, one of the thing I, I wrote, wrote it, I was like, there is something beautiful here. And I'm just going to read what I wrote. Um, there is something beautiful here. Uh, in our brokenness, we want someone we can be that honest with, that vulnerable with, mm-hmm. you know, to tell somebody that level of detail about ourselves, you know, And, and so to have Fisk find that, you know, um, it's that level of vulnerability between two people and building a relationship, there's something really beautiful about that scene in terms of being framed as Wilson, because you get the sense that this is the first time he's actually said it to another person, um, in a true vulnerable way. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, I also wrote, I find it ironic in that, and we keep mentioning Matt's Catholicity, I find Mm -hmm. it ironic that for Catholics, this level of vulnerability and honesty is what the sacrament of confession is about, you know? So Mm -hmm. for Matt, like, as a Catholic, you could say, has that when he goes to see Father Latham, but you get this sense that he can't let himself be vulnerable and he holds onto it, you know, and whereas Fisk is gaining strength in Vanessa, right? And, and having that vulnerability, Matt, where Matt, his Catholicity, should give him a place for that. And and he doesn't uh, utilize it.
0: Man, that inverse is a really good read. I like that a lot. Yeah. Because, I mean, it's so, for so much of the way they've been contrasting these two characters to kind of see them... One rising and one falling. Yeah, I like that a lot. So after Fisk has his resolve with Vanessa, we do get a scene where Ben is walking through the rain, arguing with his editor. As he's ending that conversation, Daredevil gets the jump on him, and they begin to have a conversation about Union Allied and trying to expose Wilson Fisk.
1: Okay, I'm going to read from my notes. One second. Ben is awesome. I love this. Daredevil is behind (laughs) him, and Ben sensed it
0: not okay here's my note this is literally the first note i wrote not many people pick up on the fact that daredevil is behind them ben really is batman <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, you know what by the end of this ben might give wesley a run for his money on favorite character right yeah yeah
0: god it's so funny we both wrote <laughs> the same thing <laughs> i i, I kind of want to because i we we i mentioned it a little bit um when we were discussing the previous scene, but uh, I really like the way they transition between these two scenes. Uh, I, I made mention it's it's no coincidence, the dragging the name through the, the streets, and then we come to Ben, but as Vanessa and Fisk are looking off in the distance, there's a like a, a thunderous boom, and we see that it starts raining, mm-hmm. and the fact that it transitions back mm-hmm. to the actual storm with Ben was a really nice yeah. touch.
1: Well, and I like that they're pulling through that little subplot that they have going on, of or the sub storyline, whatever, of um, the media, you know, because he he's mm-hmm. basically complaining to his editor about a fluff piece, you know, and and he, how he doesn't want to be writing the fluff piece pieces, um, you know, and then Daredevil shows up, you know, uh, and also here this is where Daredevil says like yeah Blake did talk he talked to me, and. Ben was like, well, did you get it on tape? And he's like, you, you don't have any reliable sources. And that was kind of what also reinforced of like, it's from Wilson's perspective in that scene because mm-hmm. Wilson didn't want anybody to know. And even though he gave it up to Daredevil, it was useless because he didn't have it on tape. There was nothing he could do with that information.
0: So I, I'm just going to go out and say that I, I really can't contribute too much to that because I read the scene completely wrong. 'Cause I didn't I the last thing I heard was that question that we kinda um, we didn't really know what Blake meant. I never picked up on the fact that Blake whispered something to him. So my note here in this moment was that Matt lied to Ben. And so I I don't know how much more I can add because I, I got it fundamentally wrong. But I thought it was interesting that if he did if if Matt was lying to Ben, it was showing how far he was going to just try cool. and have this last ditched effort at Fisk. Yeah.
1: Well, and, and it's interesting that, like, he decided to. Go, I mean, he almost gave away his identity. I mean, yeah. I mean, you have an intelligent reporter as Ben, and he says, you know, and once Ben puts together Union Allied, and he mentions you're working, and he puts it together by mentioning, you know, you're working with two people that are two good people. Well, clearly he knows them in some way. Yeah. You know, from that it's almost like he makes a turn and i think you alluded to this earlier like like that no i need to go by the book by the law and mm-hmm. this is my best yeah. shot um and i think it was a i i i really like the way the scene laid out to where daredevil was able to convince ben to trust him ben first saw him he took a step back and and rightfully so given his reputation
0: no i i i think it's Great that you're kind of calling back to this part of Matt that wants the lawyer side to be enough. Um, you know, as they're kind of going back and forth, and 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 Matt slowly persuading Ben. One of the final like conflicts they have is Ben says something to the lines of like, "What if I say no?" And Matt says, "I'll have to stop him some other way." And Ben says that has a ring of finality to it. And this, God, I love this exchange so much. Matt responds, "I'm not a killer." At least I keep telling people that. And Ben's final remark is, but that could change. You know, we we mentioned earlier that he's being incredibly strict about the rules for his lawyer side of morality. We get it shown clear as day. His vigilante side, I think, has been broken. Uh, and I think this is him doing everything he can the right way because he doesn't want to have to resort to killing.
1: Right, well, and it also brings back that line you mentioned from Ben. Um, uh, what was it? Well, you were saying that him and daredevil were on the same, on the same page
0: about there's no heroes and villains, only people with different agendas. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That whole different agendas line, you know, to say, to, to point out that might not always be the case as far as not being a killer, um, Mm -hmm. kind of shows a consistency in Ben's character.
0: So after Ben and Matt's confrontation, uh, Matt finally convinced Ben to write a piece exposing Wilson Fisk we get this voiceover scene where we're hearing Ben's writing as it's overlaid with Wilson Fisk going through his routine one more time. But instead of being alone, we see that Vanessa has joined him. It culminates into the scene where Wilson Fisk makes this decision to go out into the public, basically nullifying everything Ben was writing.
1: Yeah. What I love about this scene is the routine was broken, right? Like Mm -hmm. he goes to look at the painting. Um, And what I loved about it, Vanessa didn't, pull him back. Correct me if I'm wrong, Vanessa didn't pull him back. He remembered she was there and turned away from the mm-hmm. painting. So there was truly yep. that transition from this was my calm or the or or the light in the abyss that's shifted now to that strength he has in Vanessa. Um mm-hmm. Vanessa went with him to the closet, picked out clothes, and while it was a dark shirt, she picked out the light suit. Um she made it a point to with her hand, cover up his dad's cufflinks and pick new ones. And then when he makes that turn to look in the mirror, she's standing in front of the mirror. Right. And so, like, mm-hmm. you couldn't see what was in the mirror because she was in the way. You just knew the mirror was there. No,
0: you actually do see fit.
1: No, 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 no. But what I'm saying is, you don't see, you see her, you don't see the mirror. And then when she steps Uh away, you reveal Fisk is there, not the kid. Right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, you see Fisk in the mirror, but like to to fully show that that routine was broken, starting with the wall, they do the same routine all the way up to the mirror. You know? Yeah. But you don't get to see the mirror. You see Vanessa. And when she steps away, you get Fisk, not little Wilson. Mm -hmm. You know, and, right. and same thing with the cooking. You know, but then she shows up and there's a second plate. So I just, I really like the way they had closure to that. And to play
0: off what you were talking about, the suit colors and everything, I, I had made a note about it in the second routine scene. Um, but I, I thought they did a really good job because we get this scene basically three times. The first time is where he picks out basically an all black clothing. Uh, the second time, if you notice, I believe his overcoat is still black, mm-hmm. but the undershirt is a black with white stripes. And, uh, you know, we're kind of slowly seeing this impact that Vanessa is having on him. And then in this final scene where Vanessa has been fully galvanized with Fisk, it, like you said, it's the lighter clothing. And, you know, it's it's kind of that gray Mixing of the Vanessa's white dress and Fisk's normal black motif, mm-hmm. and I thought they did a really good job. And even even the cufflinks—if you notice, it was a square. I believe it was a white square with a black smaller square in the corner, yeah. and I I like that they chose that because it shows you know that Fisk he can never escape his past, right. but here with Vanessa he's learning to live
1: with it. You know what? And that's interesting because I read I wrote that through his shirt, and wrote mm-hmm. like a lighter color suit but dark shirt. Fisk still has his demons, like we all do.
0: Yeah, they, I mean, they yeah. did an amazing job of his attire and color and telling that visually on top of what they've been doing the entire episode.
1: So, as Ben's voiceover ends, we get to see Wilson's press conference, um, and where he basically decides to, and he uses interestingly the same words that Ben wrote and used in using his voiceover come out of the shadows and come into the light uh, to try to make the changes. Um, that he thinks are necessary for the city.
0: I know it's because it's a written screenplay and that the chances of the words mirroring each other are astronomical, but the fact that Fisk's speech counters exactly the lines Ben was writing is great. Like, I don't care if it's cheesy, it's just so good. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. Just because just this whole episode has been Fisk being ashamed of his past and feeling like he has to do things in hiding, resolving to come out of the shadows with Vanessa and just... I like that the way they tied that all together. Oh,
1: yeah, yeah. And it's interesting because in some ways there's some parallels to right now because in terms of what is being said publicly and what is printed in the news, right? Mm -hmm. And and what I mean by that is, um, like, you get those shots of Ben, Karen, and Foggy where they are, clearly you can tell that they don't believe Fisk, right? But Mm -hmm. everybody else watching it doesn't know this, so they don't have a reason not to believe Fisk. So he's getting to, you know, present himself in a in a particular light, um, without any kind of real critique or believable critique, um, you know, because because if if Ben published that, like who would who would believe it?
0: And I mean, it was it was already a stretch for Ben to get to the point of agreeing to write this because he straight up tells Matt it's like you know I'm going to need more concrete sources than this and you know Matt's able to be like you know just drag him out into the light and then they'll tear him apart and so Ben is already kind of like breaking down on I don't want convictions is not the right word but like his, his way of doing things he's already breaking down a little bit to put this piece out there and if he puts it now that Fisk has gotten ahead of the media it's just, like you said there's no way who's going to believe that
1: right and, and I think they show that well in Matt's anger when he trashes his laptop.
0: Oh my, dude. Matt's rage at the end was incredibly heartbreaking. I mean, because especially if we're peering into his psyche and assuming that he actually believed he might have found a way to stop Fisk without resulting to killing. Yeah. Watching him get outplayed here, like you can feel that tension of like, he spent this entire episode trying to strictly do things the lawyer way and it's not enough. Right.
1: And you really see it, like, like there's pure rage there.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, he has that oh, and heavy
1: breathing. I, I don't want to downplay or there, but I mean, I did write a note as like that will be expensive. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, especially after all the repairs he's gonna have to do after Stuck's busy. Yeah, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, he he's building up costs for having a small firm. He's gonna
0: need to get some more clients here <laughs> Very soon. But yeah, I mean, all I really have left is just overall thoughts. Um, mm-hmm. I, I I like this episode a lot. Uh, you, you've you've talked about it before about how with this long form storytelling we get to flesh out these characters in a way that no other MCU property gets to. Right. Um, this episode gave so much nuance to Wilson, and I I mean it, it. This episode I think solidifies why he's such an incredible Marvel villain. Right.
1: Well, and well because he's just so well developed. You know, mm-hmm. um, in a way that, man, we don't get that kind of treatment of any going to the MCU proper. I don't know if we get that kind of treatment of any other villain. Cl- I mean, the closest
0: we get is Loki.
1: Loki, I mean, Killmonger's fairly well developed, Thanos is fairly well developed. Uh, man, aside from those two, I mean, they've gotten better at it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but no- nothing on the level of Fisk. And again, it's that long form mm-hmm. storytelling.
0: And I mean, and the only reason why I say Loki gets the closest is that he's appeared in more, in,
1: yeah, in multiple.
0: Like they've had more time with it. Like they, like they've done good jobs with Killmonger and Thanos, but like Loki, I think has a little more nuance than they do. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, and Hiddleston just does such a great job with the character too.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think Hiddleston is the reason we still have Loki. <laughs> <laughs> but what about you? What would, uh, how would you state your overall thoughts for this episode?
1: Um, man, I really like this episode. It was really dark you know, in mm-hmm. dark subject matter. I do like that they were able to try to show some complexities. You know, some of the stuff you poiled out about Bill, like been laughing at me and just showing the brokenness and the hurt that he carried, Um, that mm-hmm. he was, you know, clearly taken out on his family. How that, you know, it's stuff that he had from his past that carried with him that then carried on to his kid. And we're seeing that, mm-hmm. you know, I, I like the yeah. way they're able to portray that.
0: But yeah, that wraps up our thoughts on... Season 1, Episode 8, Shadows in the Glass. But before we go, we do have our question of the week. Uh, So, Jude, what would you say is your favorite piece of MCU merchandise that you own?
1: Okay, I'm a collector of Funko Pops and Mm -hmm. the Spider-Man Homecoming Pop that came with the Walmart DVD. If you Mm -hmm. bought the Walmart DVD package, has the... Okay, so you know that scene when Spider-Man's hanging upside down reading the book. It's yeah. a Funko Pop of that. Oh, that's yeah, really cool. And that's, and that's probably my favorite. You know, I mean, I got you some know, cool it, it, Funko Pops, you know, MCU related, but that mm-hmm. one's probably my favorite.
0: You were the reason I have Funko Pops. You got me into it for the longest time because there was this service called the Marvel Collector Corps yeah. where I think you would you signed up. It was like a loot crate mm-hmm. and you would get mm-hmm. uh, Funko Pops via them. And I signed up for that because of you. And I, I have a couple of those as nice. well. What's
1: interesting is the in-game one Came with Captain America mm-hmm. holding Mjolnir. Mm-hmm. and there was a lot of complaints about it because it was in the wrong hand, oh. shield wise. Um, and I think you can get that now just in any store as a common. It's actually I think a better pop because it's in the right. It's in the correct hand. The shield's broken. He's he's like jumping, and there's the the lightning, blue lightning that's like coming from the hammer. It's, it's actually a much nicer uh, pop. So, hmm. what about you? What's yours?
0: So mine, I actually got this year. Um, it's a, like, you know how phones have the wireless charging spots yep. now? I have one, but it's the housing tech that Tony uses in Infinity War for his nanotech. And so whenever you put your phone on it, it lights up blue and it's that, oh. it, it looks like his chess piece. And I love it so Where'd much. Where'd you get
1: that? Cause we're looking, we're, oh my God. we're looking to buy one. I think, I think I just texted you one that was cap shield like <laughs> the other day. Oh
0: that's a charging spot. I thought that was a power
1: bank. I think that's one of the. No, I think that's a charger.
0: Oh, I might buy that. Like I was already swayed a little bit because I thought it was just like a portable charger. But if it's a wire, like if it's a wireless charging spot, I'm gonna buy that. No,
1: it's. I think it's a wireless charging spot.
0: Oh, you just sold me. But regarding mine, uh, it, it's not Think Geek. It's an offshoot of Think Geek. It's the physical store. I got it in San Antonio
1: okay. at a mall. Okay.
0: Uh. I don't have the name off the top of my head, but think like games. Like, I'm almost positive you could probably find it at like okay. GameStop because that's um, that's cool. I will I will link it in the show notes and I'll text it to you if I can okay, find it. Do
1: that, do that.
0: Yeah, yeah. I will say this pro tip if you do end up buying it, there's a little switch at the bottom that has two modes. The first mode always glows blue, no matter what. Okay. And I was a little bummed out about it because like it made it hard to sleep, but then I found mode two where it only glows a little bit and then it dims. Oh, nice,
1: nice. Okay, I yeah. It. so. <laughs> yeah, I'll be looking in the show notes. <laughs> and I hope you, happy listeners, are listening, looking at the show notes too.
0: <laughs> but that'll do it. If you'd like to chime in with your thoughts of season one, episode eight of Daredevil, or if you'd like to show off your coolest piece of MCU merch, you can always send us a picture at MCU Need to Know at Twitter or tag us at MCU Need to Know on Instagram. We also have MCU Need to Know at gmail.com if you'd like to write in that way as well.
1: And if you like what you hear, we appreciate it if you rate us on uh, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast and share with a friend.
0: And we'd like to give a special thanks to Nick Sandy for the rendition of the Avengers theme uh, that we use at the beginning and end of our podcast. thank you, Nick. All right. uh, That'll do it. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you for doing this, Jude. Thank you, Trey. See you all next week.
1: 11
0: 12 you, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and throw this gauntlet down now. Last week we were you and I off podcast we were discussing how we were we're afraid we're almost getting too good and we're running out of intags. I'm calling it now. If we go through this entire episode without an obvious intag, this is going to we're going to get to gloat. We're going to put this as the intag.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. This is it. This is So the this, is.
0: if you're hearing this, if you're hearing this, we're gloating. We nailed this episode. Oh yeah.
1: Like Mm. Hashtag in tech. I mean let's let's go to the MCU proper for a second. Uh this is like in game. You know? I mean, where's in game was thanos's movie and you know, we start with him, we end with him, he has his full story. Infinity Yeah, Infinity War. That's...
0: <laughs> so after the meeting
1: concludes
0: and Fisk and Wesley Wesley
1: Wesley that's okay oh it's the second time God. I said man I must really love in game this is the second time I said in game two weeks in a row instead of in War.
0: it's one of my all-time favorites
1: <sighs> I
0: guess people aren't gonna hear that opening shot call <laughs> for the tag. <in-tech. laughs>
1: okay uh let me try again mm-hmm. you know as because I yep. keep emphasizing his age of you know um I lost my point.
0: (laughs) Well, uh, if we're in this break, uh, the only thing I have, I thought you were shushing me. I think that sounded, I guess you just
1: wrote down with a pencil. No, I was, I was marking something with a highlighter. (laughs) It sounded like you were shushing me. (laughs) (laughs) Because I said, all right, while we're in this break and No, I was, I was highlighting something (laughs) in my notes. And so he's the a,
0: way the way he kept
1: so he can make those the jabs. way that
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, go ahead and say clean the uh, say that he can make those jabs. Then I'll come in because I don't have anything okay. important to say. I was just going to mention the way he interjects himself like I just did.
1: That's all. Uh, OK.
0: My question for you is is Wesley upset because it shows that Wesley isn't needed as much as he thought or because his boss gets revealed. I couldn't make. I couldn't quite zone in where I landed on
1: that. You know what? That, I, I tell you what. Can we let me use the restroom and then we'll start over? Is, is that, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. No, you're good. <laughs> well, you're good. Because well, I also had a question.
0: There's a lot of good in text. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, hang on.
0: But of course, uh, if you'd like to chime in, you you know how to reach us. But before we get to that, not going to do that again. No, that was bad. No.
1: I forgot how I transitioned just didn't mm-hmm. work um, yeah. and, and I think you would say the same thing in terms of the on-street and I think you could and I think you're saying the same thing about Mad and Foggy and their on-street gosh
0: <laughs> I cursed us in the beginning uh, didn't yeah. I yeah yeah <laughs> 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 Weskley <sighs>